The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. These days you watch the news, you're probably beginning to wonder, is capitalism reaching its end? Are we about to fall into a socialist abyss? Well, what is capitalism really, and what do people mean when they talk about socialism? In a place where many of our society's largest challenges are addressed, we have in our midst people who deal with these weighty questions every day. Let's separate the sound bites of talking heads and get down to it. Is there society at a crossroads? I want to spend some time today in the studio and get to the bottom of this with some great experts. I've got here Jason Gromet. He's founder and president of the Bipartisan Policy Center. He's well-respected on both sides of the aisle for his innovative approach to improving government effectiveness and impacting public policy. Jason, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. We have Michael Farron. He is a research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and he specializes and well-regarded for his research on the effects of government favoritism towards particular businesses, industries, and occupations, with a particular focus on labor, economic development, and transportation issues. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And our third guest is Richard Levick, founder of Levick, an international expert on crisis communication and corporate growth. Richard, it's great to have you here. Jonathan, good to be here again. Well, as promised, let's get down to it. When people are talking about capitalism, what are they actually talking about these days? Jonathan, I think the uh, key question is the imagination of this country, which has always been about this aspiration to do better, do better than your parents, do good for your kids. And capitalism is working fantastically for some of us, working great for me. This is an incredibly wealthy country. If you took the total population of the country and divided up all the wealth, every single citizen would get $60,000 a year. Incredible wealth. But half the country doesn't think it could get its hands on $400 in a month without having to sell a possession, right? They're one step away from having their entire economics unravel. And this amount of economics insecurity is terrifying, and it's getting people really angry. And I think that is what is really causing us to question whether capitalism is, in fact, providing the opportunity for everybody that was supposed to be the story of this country. So a lot of people talk about capitalism, in your view, or talking about it from the standpoint of outcomes and concern about, about outcomes, right? Yeah, of course. Look, how many people do you know who sit down every morning and think, gee, how's our economic system working in theory, right? People wonder, what the heck's happening to me? Can I send my kids to school, right? Income has been effectively flat for the last generation. Cost of in-state tuition has gone up by a factor of three. That means a lot of people no longer really have access to the basic premise of this country, and yeah, they're upset about it. So they're upset about it, which talks about the social context. But let's let's take it back for a moment. What what is actually capitalism? How does it differ from socialism, communism, and and other things? Michael, I know you're spent a lot of time thinking about this at the Mercatus Center. What does capitalism mean to you? And as you do your research, so the basis of capitalism is free enterprise is producers being able to focus on pleasing consumers and individuals being able to pursue their own happiness in whichever way they can figure out to do that. The issue is that socialism, as a definition anyway, is something that involves centralized control rather than spread out control among people. And the thing that you could look at is the benefits of capitalism is that it actually is focused on pleasing people and the people are in power rather than in a socialism uh, type of situation, you end up with some centralized authority trying to determine what people want. And uh, let's 
like in the Soviet Union, uh, trying to figure out uh, what kind of shoe should we make rather than letting consumers figure out what kind of shoe they should make. But the issue probably is, is that what people consider socialism today is more along the lines of a strong government welfare state that is a social safety net protecting people. That's why people think that capitalist economies like uh, Sweden, Denmark, and Norway are socialist, whereas they're actually market economies with a strong welfare state. So Richard, you've built Levick. You've been an entrepreneur for your entire career. From your perspective, what is capitalism? Well, I think right now capitalism is more challenged from an entrepreneurial point of view than I've certainly seen in the lifetime uh, of this firm uh, or my professional uh, experience over the last uh, 40 years. You know, we've never seen a point in time where we've had unemployment as low as we have now, around 3.5%, and yet insecurity so high. And I think there's a sense, not so much about the moment, but what does it mean for the future? What is artificial intelligence uh, going to do in robotics? What does it mean in terms of trade uh, and how it's going to impact the prices of all places at Walmart, where, uh, you know, if I've got a staggered uh, if I've got a staggered income over the last generation, generation or two, the prices at Walmart are really significant to me. So we don't see that irrational exuberance that we talked about just 20 years ago in terms of people having great confidence that the market was going to constantly go up and up. And what that means for companies and what that means for the companies that service them is that there's less desire for long-term retainers. It's more episodic. And that makes it more challenging for everyone in the food chain. As we think about this, clearly we're in a situation right now where people are unhappy or happy with the, the outcomes of a system that, that rewards on a profit basis for solving need. I mean, I think when you cut through it, capitalism, unlike other systems, it's a harsh system. I mean, that is most basic form. It's, it, it's harsh and rewarding, but it's based upon are you providing something that people provide uh, economic value to you in return? It's, it's the ultimate arbiter, but it's also incredibly harsh. Uh, or can be harsh. When you think about this and you talk about this with people, do you think there's a particular American expectation for what capitalism looks like is, is that's different from, say, Swedish capitalism or Japanese capitalism or Chinese capitalism? You know, I, I know your two experts have so much to add to this, but I do want to say, Jason, you raised such a powerful point here, I think, in the opening comments, and that is if capitalism has meant anything to us, over the last century. It's that our kids would do better than us. And that's no longer happening at least half the time. And so to the extent you're right, Jason, we do not talk about uh, the theory of capitalism and uh, economics over our cornflakes, but we do feel confident or did feel confident that our kids were going to do better than us. And John, just you know, picking up on what Richard was saying, I mean, the, the, the fundamental premise of capitalism is merit, competition. Mm -hmm. Winners and losers, people who work hard, play by the rules, can get ahead. And I think what we are seeing now is this question of whether that's still true. Is there kind of a minimum entry fee to be able to get into that merit-based system? And I think we are at least starting to question whether the you know, deck is stacked in ways that make it really improbable for some people to have access to that conversation. Social mobility. Absolutely. That was that, the imagination. That is a great point, Jason. And that is essentially what a lot of my own research focuses on, that the special interests, especially corporate interests in society, leverage government authority to their own ends 
rather than to uh, focus on serving customers. So in essence, what we have is not necessarily a capitalism problem. It's a political problem wherein government authority gets twisted to the ends of particular special interests. When we come back after the break, I want to talk more about Americans' expectation because I think there is a very tight intertwining between politics and capitalism. I I think we can trace back to the Declaration of Independence. We're going to do a little bit of a history lesson when we come back on What's Worked in Washington. We'll be right back. Thank you to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. The Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions, and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace. Thanks to Auric, an international law firm that focuses on technology, energy, and infrastructure finance. Clients worldwide call on it for forward-looking commercial advice on transactions, litigation, and compliance. Learn more at auric.com. And we're back with what's working in Washington Extra, talking about capitalism, particularly American capitalism. I have in the studio with me Jason Grumet, founder and president of the Bipartisan Policy Center, Michael Farron, research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason, and Richard Levick, the founder of Levick. First segment really leads me to this. It, it seems to me that this issue of capitalism and, and outcome, this is not a, this is not a new thing. I, I could trace it back to the founding of the country. Uh, Michael, I know you spent a lot of time researching, so I'll turn to you first. Give me some historical perspective. This doesn't sound like this is a new issue for us. Absolutely not. So the idea of an excessive intertangling of economic interests and government interests and a sort of uh, regulatory privilege or tax privilege or subsidies from the government for private industry has a long history. Uh, There was actually multiple states that defaulted on their debt in the mid-1800s after over-subsidizing a lot of railroad and canal projects in the early 1800s. That led to a bunch of clauses in state constitutions that are essentially anti-gift clauses that prohibit the state from being able to offer special subsidies to particular firms or industries. That held for a while, but then obviously the Robert Barron era and the federal government uh, didn't go too well in the late 1800s. And then in the mid-1930s, during the depths of the Great Depression, states started offering uh, relocation subsidies for manufacturing firms, trying to draw firms to the Deep South, and then the North responded. And essentially, it just accelerated to where we have what we have today, which is about $45 billion to maybe $70 billion wasted every year on economic development subsidies. The issue about the kind of the cyclical reality of this, I think, is really important. And I'm going to out you, Jonathan. During the break, you were uh, quoting Tocqueville, which doesn't happen a lot on uh, the radio. But uh, given the opportunity once a decade, um, you know, the thing that Tocqueville (laughs) said about America was we had this capacity for what he called repairable mistakes, which basically means, you know, there's ballast in our democracy. When things get too far out of whack, somehow the country figures that out and kind of pulls us back towards the middle. I think that's the moment we're at now. You know, you hear a lot of people talking about inclusive capitalism or stakeholder capitalism, this idea that we, in the early 80s, shifted the system away from imagining the corporate 
responsibility to its community and really thought about it as its responsibility fundamentally to maximizing kind of short-term shareholder interest. And that that's when things started to change. And if you look big picture, you know, at the math, and I'm reading this because I don't have a photographic memory, from 1945 to 1981, the earnings of the bottom 90% of the country increased by almost 80%, and the top 1% increased by about 30%, right? So you saw actual accelerated wealth growth at the bottom of the pyramid. Between 1981 and 2014, the bottom 90%'s income fell by 3%, and the earnings of the top 1% increased by almost 180%. So something happened, right? There was this moment from basically World War II to about Reagan where everybody was doing better. You know, the base was broadening and strengthening. And that changed about 40 years ago. And I think it's a moment now where our democratic system is going to have to figure out what can we do without taking away that engine of entrepreneurship that makes the country what it is. How can we sustain that spark but make sure that actually more people have access to it? When uh, we were on the break and I talked with you about Tocqueville, you know, there's a Frenchman who was an aristocrat, comes to America in 1826 to learn about the prison system and ultimately determines that what makes this country really interesting and democratic is the the opportunity we all have. I mean, he saw from the beginning there was a particular intertwinement of, of capitalism and opportunity with Americanists, as he described it. Richard, you, you're you a big believer that we have to be aware of the fabric of society. How, how do you see in this play out? You know, when we look at the founding of this country, it's really founded on three precepts. One, obviously democracy. Two, capitalism. And three, theology or the absence thereof, and it's the intertwining. And of course, the First Amendment, both uh, the protection of belief in religion, but also non-belief. But if you look at all three of the systems right now, democracy, capitalism, and religion, all of them are under attack for one reason or another, or our faith in them, no pun intended, or perhaps it is, mm -hmm. that uh, they are being limited, being risked. And you have, although throughout history, whether it was Grover Cleveland in the 1880s, or uh, Teddy Roosevelt in the early 1900s, or Churchill in the 1940s, capitalism has always been questioned about its imbalance. But we're now at a point where I think people are getting angry. We're seeing a level of discourse that as a communicator, and it's not just companies, but you know, I spend time in 70, 75 different countries running around the world. We're seeing here, I think the city on the hill, we're seeing a greater level of anger and, disc and, and discourse, a separation that we probably haven't seen, not since the 68 to 72 period during the Vietnam War, but 1856 to 1864, where you really saw the country start to pull apart. And this is what, frankly, drove me to want to get together with you in the studio today, because how I see this playing out is, is people, when they're angry, run to absolutism. Absolutely. You know, they, right? They, uh, socialism. It becomes a buzzword for, I'm not happy with this, uh, or true free markets, and these terms get thrown around, or religion, very absolutist, but fundamentally, America's never been an absolutist country when it comes to solving its problems. And just to note, you know, there's a lot of conversation about socialism, but don't forget the rush towards nativism and authoritarianism. If you look at what's happening around the globe, my concern is less that we are actually going to become socialist nations. Then we're going to start to see that social unrest rip the fabric of these democracies apart and, you know, look what's happening in Poland. Look what's happening in Hungary. Look what's happening here in the U.S. You know, we are starting to identify our problem not as our economic system, but as the other, whatever that other is. And that's a pretty dangerous phenomenon. Absolutely. And that's dangerous not just to communities and societies, but also to 
capitalism itself to bring this around. So over the last 40 years, the amount of uh, amazing poverty, the deepest poverty in the world where you're surviving on less than about $2 a day accounted for inflation costs and and cost of living uh, has dropped from over 50% of the world population to under 10% of the world population in just 40 years. And the reason for that primarily has been because of greater trade. Ever since World War II, trade opened up between nations that allowed for a lot more people around the world to lift themselves up out of poverty. China didn't start lifting itself out of endemic poverty until the economic reforms of the 1970s. There's a great NPR story that you can uh, listen to. It's called The Secret Document That Changed China. And it was essentially a group of villagers agreeing to, rather than farm communally, to separate their land and farm individually. The fact that you actually earned the payoff from your work led them to work harder. They produced so much more in the course of a year that they weren't able to keep their secret pact a secret, and they're worried they're going to be executed. But instead, it worked so well, the Chinese government actually shifted its entire plans because a lot of liberal reformers had come in at that point. And that led to amazing economic growth in China following that. So the problem now is, again, like you said, faith in capitalism. And the march to authoritarianism uh, that, that both of you were touching on. If we look at the robber barons of today, Facebook in particular, Google, Amazon, first, what are they truly producing when you compare them to a century ago with the robber barons who it's steel and bridges and railroads uh, and oil that created all sorts of opportunities for us? I'm not sure what Facebook is truly creating, but it certainly has created a platform for disruption of democracy, for an uncensored uh, access uh, and encouragement of views that are now certainly we're seeing in commonplace in a way that we haven't since the 1930s. When we come back after the break, I very much want to complete our conversation by giving people who care some guideposts for how we actually go about having an intelligent conversation and driving our economy forward so it's fair and it meets the needs of people who want to get rich and the people who want to have the opportunities to benefit from that. We're here What's Work in Washington. Extra, we'll be right back after the break. to Auric, an international law firm that focuses on technology, energy, and infrastructure finance. Clients worldwide call on it for forward-looking commercial advice on transactions, litigation, and compliance. Learn more at auric.com. Thank you to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. The Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions, and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace.
And we're back on What's Working in Washington Extra, talking about capitalism here in the United States. I'm here with Jason Grumet, founder and president of the Bipartisan Policy Center, Michael Farron, research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and Richard Levick, founder of Levick, a national expert on crisis communication. For the break, I started to think about this, and now I think we've turned to the part of the conversation maybe be the most helpful. Americans clearly are driven by fairness. There's a particular brand of expectation. How do we make sense of this and keep keep the country moving forward instead of falling into just people screaming at each other, which ultimately will get us nowhere except more people screaming at each other? Well, Jonathan, I guess, you know, this is where um, democracy has to actually step up a little bit. So you know, a number of us mentioned earlier that the system is getting strained, and either we find some ballast in the middle or one of two things are going to happen. We're going to either see the kind of yellow vest social unrest or, you know, the more radical, progressive Elizabeth Warren agenda is going to step in with a really blunt instrument. And I think at the Bipartisan Policy Center, we think there are a number of things that could happen right now, even in this semi-functional Congress. We think of it as kind of an opportunity agenda. Initiatives like paid family leave. The United States is the only Western democracy that makes people choose between their babies and their paychecks. A remarkable number of folks are going back to work after five or six days of having a kid. And we've actually seen women's labor participation actually start to drop for the first time in a generation. The opportunity to figure out how to save for your retirement, right? The notion of working at Kodak for 40 years just isn't there anymore. If you're an Uber driver and you're doing, you know, work on, you know, someone's tech system on the side, you have no access to a retirement account. There's bipartisan legislation right now moving forward that would start to address that. I think something that really matters, and we haven't talked about the millennials that much, is student debt. This kind of crushing debt burden that is actually diminishing people's opportunity to family, you know, have families, start to buy homes. Uh, there's good legislation moving forward. Senator Alexander and Senator Murray, who've always worked really well together, are trying to address this question of how do we make sure that if you're going to school, you're going to be able to come out with an academic credential that actually allows you to start to pay off your debt. And if you're a university that continues to graduate people with unmarketable degrees, you know, where's your skin in the game? And I think you know, we start out talking about this question of does capitalism have kind of a messaging issue. A lot of that, I think, is animated by this recent poll, which shows that about 50% of voting adults under 40 aren't so sure whether capitalism or socialism is a better bet. And that's not because they're irrational or, you know, reading philosophical theory. Millennials are about 10 years behind. Where are the baby boomers? If you actually look at the household wealth of a millennial, it's about half of that of a baby boomer in the 1980s. It seems to me, though, that we're not asking the right question. What we should be asking is, do you want American capitalism? Michael, this is right in your research. Isn't this about not just elevating from the bottom, isn't it also about holding those at the top accountable for not digging themselves, you know, more money out of the public trial? Absolutely. The <clears throat> the underlying issue is who writes the rules? Do people with special government access and influence get a chance to write rules that are more in their favor than others? This is a problem that we've had throughout the history of the U.S., both in terms of economics as well as social issues. We've gotten much better in social issues. We still have a long way to go, but we have moved forward. And I think it's part of that idea of the ballast of democracy that Jason was talking about. But we need to get better in regard to economics, who write the rules. Uh, my friend Chris Koopman wrote a Wall Street Journal article a couple years ago, I think referencing the same uh, poll that Jason just referenced. The title of the article was Mute, uh, Millennials versus Mutant Capitalism. And about uh, less than half of millennials said they favored capitalism, and about a third said they favored socialism. And what Chris's point was is that we need to uh, essentially illustrate the fact that our economy is not purely capitalistic, that the negative aspects, that the fact that special interest groups with more influence get to write the rules or influence the rules 
is part of a problem, not part of capitalism itself. One of the uh, policy agenda items that I've been working on is uh, something that has a lot of bipartisan uh, support. A number of Democratic state legislators have proposed this in their own states, and that is an interstate compact to avoid the kind of uh, uh, economic development subsidies that were given to HQ2 among uh, and Foxconn and dozens of other massive corporations that essentially are getting taxpayer dollars for doing something that they would have been doing anyway. Richard, we've been together now for about 25 minutes. You're the messaging guy. If you were going to uh, try to give Father Economy some advice, how would you uh, advise that we describe capitalism in a way that will make Americans continue to buy into it? Well, I'm not so sure that I'm worthy of giving Father Economy uh, <laughs> advice. I, you know, I'd say a few things. First of all, in terms of the definition of capitalist, we're all capitalist on the way up, but we're socialist on the way down. And we're very concerned about what, how, how just how rocky uh, the bottom is. Two, I think that we are in an age of scarcity mentality, as Stephen Covey would uh, discuss, as opposed to abundance mentality. We are all about getting ours. And I think that's why we have this race, whether it's for uh, companies looking for better uh, tax uh, or other handouts uh, in terms of moving into districts, or it's our own employment. We're, we're, we're feeling scarcity at a time when we really shouldn't, and that tells us where we're going. And I think three, for companies, we've moved a long way since Milton Friedman in 1970, which is the purpose of a corporation is profit, period. It's the shareholder and the customer. We now are in an age where corporations are defined by far more than their profits. You know, having been in the war room at AIG 10 years ago and, and experienced one of the members of our team being punched in the face because he forgot to take the AIG badge off when he walked on the streets of New York. Now, I know some of your listeners are saying that doesn't make it very unusual because it was, after all, New York. But I think, <laughs> you know, it was, it's the, it, people got very, very angry. What is uh, the purpose of a corporation now? And I think it's much harder for boards, and they have to realize now, whatever's going to happen next, we have to use our peacetime wisely. Who are our third-party allies? What is our corporate social responsibility? What is our green approach? How do we have communications out there that when people are angry, they're going to see us with the, uh, as a good guy as opposed to as a bad guy? My overall conclusion, gentlemen, is that really what – People are driven by whether they are free market or they're concerned about outcomes, or whatever, is ultimately it's fairness. Absolutely. That's a core human drive. Uh, it's even present, uh, they've shown in biology studies and primates. Uh, if you give one monkey a grape and another monkey a banana, one of them is going to be mad. I'm not throwing away my shot, right? I mean, that's the, that's the premise. I think that's right. And I really enjoyed having the three of you in the studio today. This was a great conversation. Jason Rumay, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Michael Farron, as always, thank you. Great to be here. And Richard Levick, as always, it's great to have you. Thank you. What's working in Washington Extra? We'll see you next time. Producer is Tracy Madigan, online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two DC region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. Tweet us at, at What's Working DC and tell us what you think of the show. Don't forget to like us on iTunes. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.